The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Welcome. Um, this morning we're in Mark chapter 10. I don't know if they could have chosen a larger font for that slide. <laughs> Uh, as, as just as we were worshiping and as I've been, been preparing for this message this week, this is not a fun message. Um, this is not uh, something that any of us enjoy talking about. And, and Jesus, you'll see in this passage uh, what he's confronted with, which is a bunch of people, a bunch of Pharisees who um, really just want to justify themselves, want to edify themselves when it comes to the subject of divorce. They, they've looked back at Deuteronomy. They've been talking about this thing for, for generations. And basically in Deuteronomy, what, what Moses prescribes to people is he, he gives them this option where if, they, if husbands in particular want to seek a divorce from their wife, they can do so um, fairly easily. They can do so by, by giving a certificate of divorce if, if they find something uh, unclean or distasteful in their bride. And uh, what Deuteronomy doesn't really do is it gives instruction for that, that person who becomes divorced and then remarries. Can, can after that second divorce, can they go back to the first spouse? It says no, but it really doesn't offer any ethics around what kind of circumstances would lead to a, a biblical divorce. And it doesn't give any ethical criteria for that. And so what happened is these rabbis, these groups of rabbis, decided to divide into camps essentially and uh, define their own terms. Some came up with this, this idea of this for any reason divorce, for any, any kind of cause divorce. And, and that's what Jesus is really going to address in this passage. But there were some that, that defined a list of criteria. These are the circumstances that might fit under what Moses was talking about. But you get the sense as they come to Jesus in Mark chapter 10 that he is, is just, uh, he just has a so much higher standard than, than anything that they are talking about. He's he seems to be even disturbed in his spirit by the way they're approaching this topic of marriage and divorce so cavalierly and the way they're trying to elevate themselves over one another as they discuss this, this subject. And why? Well, Jesus, the Son of God, is one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit. He was there at creation. And at creation, he, he makes this, this wonderful creation that is good. And he looks at every element of it and he says that it is good. And then he looks at, at what he makes in Adam and Eve. And this marriage covenant, as the two become one flesh, that they're united in soul, and he looks upon this first marriage and describes it as very good. This is, this is one of the, the most glorifying parts of his creation. This pleases him so much to look upon the, the union of this first husband and wife, and he looks upon this beautiful thing that he's created, that he intended for humanity to, to continue to do, this ordinance that he places in creation, and he sees the way that people treat it so casually or so cruelly, honestly, in the way they, they leave their spouses, they tear apart their soul from the one that they've been bound to by vows. And Jesus, responding to this, he, he elevates the standard beyond anything that these Pharisees or rabbis want to hear. And I'm going to read from Mark chapter 10. And then we're going to talk about uh, three things this morning in, in the time that we have. We're going to talk about the gravity of marriage. We're going to talk about the biblical grounds for divorce. And we're going to talk about the grace of God. And there's a lot to to cover here, and, and I'm sorry if I don't get to answer every question, um, but maybe we can talk about this more afterward. But in Mark chapter 10, in verse 1, it says that he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. 
And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them with a question. He says, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, This was because of your hardness of heart. Your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but they are one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is a heavy teaching from Jesus. But what we see from this teaching of Jesus about divorce and marriage is that his idea of marriage, this covenant, far preceded any human laws. This is not a civil law. This is not something that was created by man in each, each given country. No, this was something that was ordained by God from the very beginning. And what he ordains and what he says is it's just in the first two chapters of Scripture is that he has ordained that you are to be married, husbands and wives, one spouse in lifelong partnership between one man and one woman, and that is how humanity will flourish. That is how he intended it to be. And because this is an ordinance for all creation, this is something that is going to be a blessing to all people, regardless of whether they are believers in God or not. We see that. We see cultures all around the world that celebrate this monogamous man and woman coming together in marriage. This is God's design for human flourishing. And, and, but what is even more important is that God gives us an instruction for how this is going to go well. How we can live this out in a way that, that glorifies God and is for our benefit and blessing. It, it's amazing how many debates we have in society about these things today. And, and we wonder what scripture has to say about it. And most of what scripture has to say about human sexuality, about marriage, about all these things is found in the very beginning of the Bible. Start at the beginning. And it says quite a lot. God's good gift to us is that man would leave mother and father, be united to his wife as one flesh, a joining of two lives together. Not one of you, no, one new thing, one new creation. And what scripture tells us is that this represents Jesus and his union to us in the church. This is a good thing from God, a holy union, and it honors God. And, but here's the thing, while marriage is good, is good marriage automatic? No, it's not, is it? Why? Well, I think because we have this tendency to just read fairy tales and the happily ever after or watch romantic comedies and it all comes together at the end and that's not really how marriage works. Marriage does not complete us. Marriage reveals us and what it tends to reveal in us is just how selfish we are. Married folks here, am I right about that? <laughs> that's what a marriage is. It's a union of, of two flawed, sinful people. And what that is, is a recipe for difficulty, conflict. And as a result, there are going to be challenges to your marriage no matter what. If you are married in your life, you will have challenges. But what the good news is, is that you have a lifetime. If, you're, if you submit to God's word in this, you have a lifetime to work through these challenges with your spouse. And a good marriage, the way God designed it, it's not characterized by self-centeredness, not me, me getting whatever I want. That actually wouldn't go very well. It's, it's actually about self-sacrifice. 
laying down your lives for one another, putting your spouse ahead of yourself. This is how Jesus talks about it in Scripture. This is how Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5, maybe the most famous passage on marriage in Scripture. This is how your marriage will thrive. It says this in Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, willing to die for us, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As a result of being married to you men, your wives should be more glorious and more godly, not less. Not diminished. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Leave, cleave, and become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love each other as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? 2,000 years ago, the perfect Son of God came into our existence. He lived a sinless life. Despite living this sinless life, he was betrayed, he was arrested, he was convicted, beaten, mocked, scorned, and nailed to a wooden cross and killed. And here's the thing, that wasn't an accident. He went willingly. He knew what was coming for him and he followed through. We've seen this in the Gospel of Mark. He's on his way to Jerusalem knowing exactly what awaits him and yet he goes willingly to the cross because he loves you. He loves you. And Jesus demonstrated this perfect love by, by humbling himself, serving us, laying down his life for us, even when we don't deserve it and you know we don't, because he loves us. And he did that so that we might have life. That is true love. True love is self-sacrifice. True love is, is self-denial. True love is, is service. True love is the solid rock. This kind of love is the solid rock on which your marriage will thrive. Not just survive, but thrive. Over the last several years, I've had the privilege of doing a lot of premarital counseling with couples. I've also witnessed wedding after wedding, probably a hundred weddings in in the last few years. And I can tell you emphatically that, that not one of those couples, as they prepared for that day and as they met each other at the end of that aisle, met that day hoping that their marriage would end in divorce. Now, this ought to be obvious, obvious to us, but if, if before you wed, if you're getting ready to marry or you're dating someone and you don't think you have a good shot of it lasting, don't do it. Don't do it. Hit, hit pause. Figure it out. This is not something you ought to, to rush into to unify your life to someone in this way. It is, it is too important. And what these couples do, though, as, as, as they leave, cleave, and become, I, they enter into this covenant with, at the very least, hope that it will last. Is that fair enough? Marriages don't begin with a a hope that that one flesh will be violently torn apart. No, rather it begins with joy, it begins with excitement, it begins with hope and the solemn commitment as a new husband and wife promise to lay down their lives for each other. They make vows to each other. Maybe that's the only thing that some of you need to hear this morning is remember your vows. Remember the vows that you made to your husband, to your wife, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death separates us. That's what we commit to, nothing else. 
Yet the tragic reality, and, and, and you know this all too well, and it's all throughout this room, and it's all in all of our lives, it affects each one of us, that far too many of these joyful celebrations end up in separation and pain. Uh, Shanti Felton, a researcher and author, did extensive studies of census data over the last few decades. And what her studies revealed was that the divorce rate in the United States in the early part of the 20th century was less than one person per 1,000 was divorced. 0.9% of people living in the United States. However, things have changed, right? With the sexual revolution in the, in the 1960s, with uh, California, as always, leading the way, uh, they, they passed these no-fault divorce laws that became more and more prevalent throughout our, our land, and that's very much what the, the Pharisees, that's the same kind of thing they had going on here. And, and what happened was divorce rates accelerated massively into the 1980s, where they peaked with uh, a rate of 1 in 200 individuals in the U.S. getting divorced each year, or 1.2 million divorces annually in the mid-80s. So the good news is this rate is dropping steadily. The bad news is it's because we're just not getting married anymore. Millennials, uh, Gen Z, just not getting married nearly at the same rates. Over 50% of, of this younger generation will stay unmarried um, and are unmarried right now. That's crazy, isn't it? And it's not uh, good news for society. However, for those that are married, the real stats reveal this good news, that most marriages do last a lifetime. Most marriages do. I wonder how many of you have heard that stat, that 50% of marriages end in divorce. Anyone ever heard that? Yeah, and you've also heard that for Christians, it's just as bad, maybe worse. Anyone heard that too? Um, that's a myth. It's not actually true. Uh, it's faulty research. If you were go to go around surveying people, if I were to ask you, well, how many of you donated to charity last year? Pretty much everyone would be like, uh, yeah, I did, sure, yeah. Um, and, and, and the reality is we have a tendency to want to say what's best about us. And uh, the same was true of the, the Barna studies that originally gave this data about Christians um, and divorce. They asked, are you a Christian? Check yes. And then they asked about divorce after that. But you can probably uh, figure out that that's a pretty faulty method. And so seeing the, the flaw in this type of surveying, where, where people are, are professed to be Christian just because, just because they're born in the South or something like that, um, Bradford Wilcox, a well-regarded sociologist at UVA, not an evangelical Protestant Christian, he decided to ask further questions like, do you regularly attend church? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Do you trust the authority of the Bible? Do you pray together regularly? And what the results revealed of these surveys is that when the husband and wife don't just profess faith in Jesus, but actually practice the way of Jesus, that their marriages are the best, most satisfying, and the rates of divorce are the lowest by far. The rates of abuse are the lowest. There is a strong connection between actually living out our faith in the Lord and the longevity and the happiness and satisfaction of our marriages. Practicing Christians in our nation have both the most endearing and enduring marriages. And what uh, it was also revealed, um, Shanti Feldon has this, this is anecdotal from some marriage counselors that she works with, where they said that couples who simply take the time to pray together daily, the divorce rate of such couples is about 1 in 1,500. Do you want to have a, a, a divorce, or a marriage, excuse me, that lasts? Just pray with your spouse. Pray with your spouse every day. Start there. That's a really good place to start. The couples most likely to divorce, this shouldn't really surprise us, but those who have different religious beliefs 
than each other are the most likely statistically to divorce. There are a lot of other reasons that people have conflict in marriage. There's conflict around sex. There's conflict around in-laws. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Okay, there's conflict around religion, certainly, and there's conflict around finances. Financial insecurity can be really deadly uh, to a marriage. It, but when we look at this, what, what this, these surveys reveal is that those who submit to doing things in God's way, according to God's word, are most likely to have an enduring marriage. It's almost like God knows what he's doing, right? So do you take this seriously? Do you take seriously the commitment to being part of a church? To, to not, not just showing up occasionally, but being part of a community and investing in that community, being known, being able to share your burdens with one another? Do you take seriously the, the call to pray together and to unite yourselves before God? Do you take these things seriously? But here's the thing, and I know, know this is true. I, I know so many of you in this room. We are not statistics, are we? Like, we're not just someone who, who falls into a category or a box. You each have individual stories. You have individual life experiences, things that are very complex, uh, sometimes very, very difficult. And, and what I've seen is that people make decisions, don't they? Decisions that are often to our detriment and to our harm. And sometimes we're the ones that make those decisions. But we have the power to make decisions that positively or ne negatively impact our lives, our marriages, and our futures. And, and the unfortunate reality is, is despite what we see demonstrated in Scripture or, or prescribed in Scripture, what is demonstrated in Scripture is that people are sinful. And so are we. And so we make small compromises, little sins, little secrets over time until great harm is eventually done. And we do damage to the very people that we have vowed before God to love and to cherish. And the impacts of that are significant. Just this week and, and the week prior, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people in my life who have been directly impacted by divorce in, in negative ways. Let, let me just ask you, how many of you have been negatively impacted by the divorce of people in your life? Anyone? A lot of us. A lot of us. And, and what I saw as I talked to people about this is I saw the redemptive work of God. I saw the grace of God as he came alongside people in, in their hour of desperate need. And I also got this, this consistent sentiment. And it was, it didn't have to go this way. It didn't have to go this way. Some of the consequences uh, of uh, when a marriage breaks apart, when, when this union of souls is torn in two, some of the consequences that you know is that single parenting, the burden of single parenting often gets laid primarily on one person, usually the mom. We talked about this last week. And, and it doesn't get any easier over time. The stress and the burden and the weight of that um, is very, very heavy on one individual who, who suddenly is, is taken out of all the structures that a good, healthy marriage ought to provide. Emotionally and spiritually, the toll is, is very heavy. There's trauma, there's resentment, there's anger, there's unforgiveness, all these things that, that just tear us apart and can take years to work through. Additionally, you know this, but the pain of divorce and separation, it doesn't just affect the bride and the groom. If you're contemplating divorce and you think the kids will be fine, no, they won't. No, they won't. Feelings of rejection, resentment, loneliness, painful memories, and often arrested development. There, there's a large percentage of children who, as a result of, of 
not even understanding their place in their parents' separation, not understanding their responsibility and that they were not responsible to suffer from, from not developing at the same rate as their peers. We need present moms and dads. We talked about this last week. Children need the loving support of both men and women, whether it's their moms or dads or others that can be a positive influence in our lives. And, and, but as I talked about this with different people that I love this week, What's clear is that this is not inevitable. Even if you are divorced, this, these kinds of negative outcomes are not inevitable. You, Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God. You have the constant presence of your Lord with you. You have the, the power of the Spirit, the community of the church. But can I tell you, church, this is an area in which I see that we need to step up. Too often when people are going through these terrible circumstances, people back off because we don't really know what to do. We don't know how to get involved. We don't know how to support. We don't want to pick sides so we don't come alongside. And this is an area where we need to take seriously our love of our brothers and sisters in Christ to walk with them through the darkness they're in. We need to pray. We need to suffer alongside. We need to support. And I'm praying right now that, that we as a church can figure out how to do this better, to carve out places where people can grieve together, heal together, get the counseling that they need and the support that they need from the church. Marriage is a heavy responsibility from the Lord. It is good. It is good. As we look at, at the gravity of marriage, the second thing I want to look at this morning is the grounds for divorce. What if it doesn't go according to your hopes? What are the grounds for divorce biblically? I'm just going to go through these kind of in a, in a list form, and it's not a long list. First criteria or first ground for divorce biblically is adultery and sexual immorality. And I, and I should just say this from the outset. It's, it's not like if this happens to you, anyone is saying, oh, I checked that box, good for me, it's a biblical divorce. No, this is a terrible, terrible experience for people to go through. Matthew 5, 32, though, Jesus says this, he says, but, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Notice that responsibility on the one who leaves. He makes his wife commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We'll come back to that second phrase to help, help us understand that better in just a moment. Matthew 19, 9, he says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits Adultery. Now, this exception clause, it's not included in Mark's gospel. It's not included in Luke. And why uh, scholars strongly agree that adultery is such a, such a no-brainer, justified reason for divorce. It's not a prescription, but it's permission to divorce that it doesn't even need to be said in these passages because that's not what Jesus is addressing with these Pharisees. He's addressing the, their questions about no-fault divorces, for any reason, divorces. In fact, so it, Luke's gospel, if we look at that, if we look at the beginning of Jesus' life, Joseph is actually commended for being honorable for the way he wants to quietly divorce Mary and their betrothal when he finds out that she's pregnant out of wedlock. He's not condemned for that. But what we see is that sexual immorality, and you know this, it does clear and painful damage to the integrity of your one flesh partnership. And Jesus makes it clear here in Matthew. I'm not, I'm not going to bore you a lot with Greek words here, but one of the words here is mokeo, which means adultery. The other is porneia sexual immorality, and, and we get the word pornography from porneia. And what it is is all kinds of sexual sin, fornication, adultery, sexual abuse, all these kinds of things. And what Jesus is saying is that in the marriage relationship, these two shall become one flesh, and sexual immorality, particularly adultery, violates that covenantal sacred command. 
The tricky part about this is, is adultery and sexual immorality, these things can be pretty well hidden for a very long time, can't they? We don't always know. And if someone comes to you and they say, there were biblical grounds for divorce here, it is not your job to dig in and find out, well, was there sexual immorality? Was there an affair? All that kind of stuff. Not really your business. But what should someone do? So, so can, can we disagree? This is a clear case where someone can justifiably, in Scripture, be divorced from their spouse. We can agree with that. But the question that comes up here uh, a lot is, what should someone do if they've been divorced for reasons other than adultery and have subsequently remarried? What do we do with this, this thing that Jesus says about the, the one that remarries commits adultery? And what if you're already in that situation? How do you live with, with that? That's quite a, a striking thing that Jesus says in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 that, that ought to alarm us. If you marry another, uh, I think what's important to note, notice here is that Jesus doesn't say, if you go on and start a relationship with another, that's not really a marriage. No, he regards it as an actual marriage, a valid marriage. And what he's saying here is that that second marriage does begin with an act of adultery. What he is not saying is that this is an ongoing adulterous relationship. He's not saying that. He seems to regard it as a valid marriage. And, and so if new vows have been made before God, if, if a husband and wife join themselves together in a marriage covenant subsequent to their first marriage, to end that marriage would, to be, it would cause further harm and commit further sin. In other words, though a marriage may have begun in adultery, a second marriage should not be thought of as continual ongoing adultery. Rather, husband and wife, wife should be honest about their responsibility. They should be honest in their confession to God in seeking his forgiveness, and then they should do everything they can to strive to make that marriage a God-honoring, God-glorifying marriage till the end of their lives. The second, the second biblical um, grounds for divorce that we see is, number two, abandonment. Abandonment. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 15. It says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. I've seen this firsthand from people that I know and love where their spouse just walks out on them. And maybe you've all heard those stories. Like when I was growing up, one day my dad went off, when I was 10 years old, he went off to the store and he never came back. Maybe you've heard stories like that. And what Jesus is saying here is that there are cases in which a spouse will abandon their family, which is unbelievable to me uh, that someone could do that, and yet they do. And some of you have experienced that, where you just had a parent walk. And what Jesus, uh, what, what Scripture says here, and what Paul says, excuse me here, is that if that unbelieving partner separates, walks out, leaves you, let it be so. In such cases, you are not enslaved. If you are deserted by your spouse, an unbeliever in particular here who abdicates the care and provision of children and vulnerable family members and walks out the door, you are no longer bound to that marriage covenant. Now the question naturally arises, but what if that person that just walked out the door professes to be a believer? Scripture has a few things to say about that. It says, in talking about the context of, of widows and, taking, and families taking care of those in need, it says that if someone deserts the responsibility of caring for the vulnerable in their lives, children, widows, family members, Scripture describes such person as acting worse than an unbeliever. Matthew 18, just before Jesus' teaching on divorce, he talks about when someone has sinned against you, like a husband or wife walking out on their spouse, when someone has sinned against you, you go and confront them with their wrongdoing. And if they 
to you. If they won't listen, you go with a witness. And if they won't listen to you and a witness, you, you bring it to the church. And if they won't listen to the church and, and repent, what Scripture says is that they ought to be regarded as not a believer at all, but rather a Gentile or a tax collector because there's not evidence of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, now remember, Jesus loves Gentiles. Jesus loves tax collectors. He is full of grace. He is full of forgiveness towards Gentiles and tax collectors, ourselves included. This, this passage does not indicate a lack of forgiveness towards the one that has done wrong, but it does indicate a wise separation. And so in the case of abandonment by a spouse, the same is true. If there is unrepentant sin, if someone has demonstrated that they're acting as an unbeliever and separates from their spouse, then I believe that scripture would say you are free. You are not enslaved. This is a painful freedom though, isn't it? This is not what you wanted. It is a heavy, costly freedom with long-term pain. I have to say this. This is, I think, really important. Every time when there's this kind of division in a marriage, separation, there's a lot of pain. And there's a lot of, of resentment justifiably. And Jesus is grieved when his image bearers do this kind of thing to one another. But, but if you have been victimized in this way by an ex-spouse, one of the, the fastest ways to deeper despair is to hold on to resentment and to hold on to bitterness and, and to not forgive. Now, I didn't say not to reconcile. Reconciliation takes two. It takes two to reconcile, but it takes one to forgive. And as believers in Jesus, as, as those that are faithful to Jesus, this is our responsibility to forgive. But Mark, what he's done, what she's done, it's, it's unforgivable. And you know what? I believe you. And yet that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to forgive the unforgivable in us. And when we can take a hold of that, when we, when we can see what he's done for us, that empowers us to be able to forgive others, and it sets us free as we forgive those who have wronged us. We don't have time to talk about this in depth, but we preached about this uh, several months ago. And so I just encourage you, there's a QR code on your notes that you can scan to, to go to the YouTube uh, channel. And I think that sermon on forgiveness could be helpful to you. Now, we have adultery and sexual immorality. We have abandonment. The question is, are there other biblical cases for divorce other than adultery and abandonment? And this is what I will tell you. Scripture gives no other criteria specifically or explicitly. But can I talk to you just as, as your brother in Christ? Paul begins this section of 1 Corinthians 7, where he talks about abandonment, and he says, he says at the beginning of, of that section, he says, this is Paul talking, not the Lord. I, not the Lord. And so this is going to be Mark talking, I, not the Lord, for just a moment. And, and this is what I'll say. I believe there are circumstances with and actions from a spouse that can cause incredible damage and harm and violence to a marriage covenant. There are circumstances that are incredibly damaging to a marriage just like abandonment. And in such cases, if, if, if you're dealing with these kinds of things, this is a massive red alert where you need to get help and support right now. Right now. Let me give you some examples of this. I'm going to talk about this phrase, in such cases, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 
7. In such cases, he says, when, when the spouse walks out, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And this phrase, toi utos, in such cases, in the Greek, is a phrase that, that doesn't mean in this case, in this exact situation. No, it's in such cases. It's in similar cases. It's in like cases, like the unbeliever abandoning a believing spouse. In this sort of situation, you are not enslaved. And I, I don't want to make a strong case here. I don't want to give you other paths out of a marriage because I don't think that's what Paul is doing. But that phrase, in such cases, at least opens up the possibility that there are things that can happen in a marriage that are incredibly damaging and that may bring an end to a marriage. I can think of a few kinds of examples of this. I think of cases such as assault, where a spouse threatens to kill their spouse or children. If that's the case, I don't know what you're going to do next in the long term, but I know what you're going to do right now. You're going to leave. You're going to get to safety right now. I think of cases of abuse in which a marriage is no longer physically safe. I think of addictions, drug and alcohol use over time and, and other kinds of things, which let's be frank, in that, in that environment of abuse and secrecy and lying, often things like adultery and abandonment are very close at hand. These are things that eventually, inevitably, lead to death and destruction when we stay on these paths of folly in such cases. I'm not, don't hear me uh, giving some kind of church sanction to, to end your marriage based on whatever you've just plugged into in such cases. I'm not doing that. But what I am saying is that there are dark and damaging circumstances in which you ought to and need to act immediately to seek help, to seek counsel. And we have resources we can give to you. It may mean involving authorities immediately. It may mean relocating immediately, removing yourself from a situation. And it definitely means seeking the counsel of God's word, of a gracious community, and the Holy Spirit so you can figure out what a path forward is. These are not clear situations. And I said this at the beginning. You are not a statistic. You have a story. You are living a, a difficult life. And I believe that God has a, a plan and a purpose and a way for you. Proverbs 18, 17, it wisely says this about the complexity of these kinds of, uh, of situations. It says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. It's so important that, that we receive counseling, especially when, when we see these red flags in a relationship. In the case of addiction, I just want to bring this up briefly. In the case of addiction, uh, some of you are thinking, what about a pornography addiction? Guess what? That, that meets the criteria of sexual immorality, as scary as that is for, for some of you gentlemen here and some of you ladies too. What about my alcohol use? As it's getting out of hand and, and, and secretly it's way worse than my spouse knows it is. Jesus has something to say about that in the previous chapter in Mark chapter 9. He says if your, your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. How seriously do you take your relationship with the Lord? How seriously do you take the, the success and longevity of your marriage? There are drastic, radical, major surgeries that need to take place in your life. Be honest. Be honest. Repent. Repent and turn. All of these situations are, are opportunities and actually mandates for us to repent as Christians and to turn. But Mark, you, you may object, are, are you giving too many paths out of marriage? I hope you don't hear me saying that. God takes marriage very seriously. 
And here, and even when in the Mosaic Law, as Jesus is talking about that, when it grants divorce in many circumstances, it's not because it's good, it's not because it's preferable, it's not because it's prescribed, but it's because we have hard hearts. And so sometimes he gives permission because of our hard hearts. And notice, though, even from Jesus, in the case of adultery, he's not saying, because someone has wronged you in this way, you must leave them. That's not what he is saying. Both of you are held to a standard. Both of you are held to a standard of of self-sacrifice, of self-denial, of fighting for your marriage. Both of you are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is my call to you this morning, is fight for your marriage. If you're still in it, fight for it. Commit to lay down your life for your spouse. Your call in marriage, first and foremost, is not to flee. It is to fight for it. And not even for the sake of your spouse, but for the glory of God, for the testimony of Jesus. Lastly, as we come to a conclusion and the band can start to come up, I want to talk about the grace of God. I think some of you this morning need to hear this. For many of you in the past, as you've gone through some pretty awful things, you need to know that God is gracious to you. God is gracious to you. His love is unending. Maybe you've heard that phrase from Malachi 2, which is a, a, not a great translation of it, but where it says, God hates divorce. And you feel the weight of that and like you're condemned by it. But actually the best translation is it says, says this in Malachi 2. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That's what we all want, right? For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the Lord, The God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Notice again the high calling that he puts on the man. Take seriously your vows before God. Does God hate divorce? Yes. He doesn't hate you, but he hates the circumstances and he hates the consequences of divorce because he loves you. Because he loves you. And because he loves you, he is grieved when you go through these kinds of things. Does he hate you? No. No, he loves you immensely. And you need to know that despite someone else ending their covenant with you and breaking their covenant with you, our God is a covenant-keeping God. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. And his love is abundant to you. I have seen this firsthand. I've seen it in the midst of terrible pain and circumstances as husbands have walked out on their wives. This is the specific examples I've seen. I've seen the way the Holy Spirit of God comes alongside the one and walks with her. And maybe as a, as a husband that's been left by your wife, you've seen this too. You have seen the way that God brings provision miraculously when you have nothing. You've seen the way that he brings comfort and to this pain and brokenness. You've seen his goodness. This is what God does. If you are divorced and you're a believer in Jesus, you are not second class, you are not used goods, you are precious sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you have a purpose in his kingdom and in his church. And all week in preparation for this this message, God has been bringing stories from scripture to mind that absolutely prove this to be true. This is what God does. I think of of Hagar, the, the, the mother of Ishmael, who is sent out into the wilderness by herself, cast out of her family, from every family structure, and God meets her in the wilderness, and he provides for her. He meets her needs. He keeps her safe, and she declares, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who provides. 
I marvel that as Mary, a pregnant teenager, faces the prospect of raising the Son of God by herself, that God intervenes through a dream to Joseph and encourages Joseph to remain with her. God honors integrity. He cares for people. I marvel that as Jesus brings the gospel to Samaria, John chapter 4, he could go to anyone to begin a ministry to Samaria, to begin spreading the gospel to this place that desperately needs good news. And who does he go to? Who does he choose? Who does he choose to bring the testimony through? He chooses a woman who has five ex-husbands. God, God of, he's a God of second, third, and fifth chances. And he uses the foolish things to, to shame the strong. There is a place in ministry for you too. And I glorify God that as a woman is caught in the act of adultery, in, Mark, in John 8, she is cowering under the weight of justice. She looks up and she sees mercy in the eyes of Jesus. As he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Our God is a God of grace. So let's pray and let's glorify him for that right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace. You have been so gracious to us, Lord. I thank you for the good gift of marriage. And there are some here who, who, who can't grasp that it's good because of so much pain that they've walked through. Lord, I pray you would pour out your comfort and your healing and, and, and your glorious presence upon those who are hurting right now. Lord, I pray for the marriages in here. Lord, there are our secrets and brokenness that we don't know about. I pray for repentance, repentance to be stirred in the hearts of men and women here. Lord, I pray for honesty in our marriages. And Lord, we pray that, that we wouldn't just be marriages that, that figure out how to get through a crisis. No, let us have marriages that thrive and that are a living picture of the self-sacrificial love and grace of Jesus Christ. But Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. And we thank you that you are with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. It's in your mighty name we pray, Jesus.